Welcome to Life of the School, episode 65. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher from Acton Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them, how'd they get in the classroom? What are they currently working on? And what are their hopes for the future? This episode, I sit down with Bonnie Nieves. Bonnie is a high school biology and anatomy and physiology teacher at Millbury Memorial Junior Senior High School in Millbury, Massachusetts. Bonnie is passionate about engaging students in authentic activities, incorporating restorative practices, and leveraging technology to empower students to make an impact on their community. She enjoys connecting with educators through social media, professional organizations, conferences, Twitter chats, and ed camps. For MassQ, the Massachusetts Computer Using Educators Organization, Bonnie serves as an elementary and secondary education science and technology ambassador and a social media ambassador. Bonnie is also a member of the National Association of Biology Teachers, the Teachers Institute for Evolutionary Science, or TIES, and NSTA, and has written for the NSTA blog and presented at multiple conferences. You can follow Bonnie on Twitter at Biology Goddess, on Voxer at Bonnie Nieves, and uh, via her WordPress blog. Welcome, Bonnie. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, this is maybe one of my fastest turnarounds to inviting a guest on um, between your naively asking a podcasting question on Twitter (laughs) on Thursday. (laughs) And then within a couple of days, me getting you right on. So uh, I'm glad you you agreed to join me. Oh, absolutely. I think this is going to be an awesome experience for me. I'm glad that you offered. Yeah, and we are like remarkably close. Um, you know, you, you teaching in in Millbury, and I, uh, we we actually are both uh, in Central Mass. I live in Central Mass, and then teach uh, right on the border of what we consider Eastern and Central Mass. So uh, very much same neck of the woods. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, our paths really haven't crossed too much, so that's that's odd. Yeah, it's weird because it's not like either one of us is particularly shy or uh, <laughs> retiring when we're not in the in our classroom. No, absolutely not. I was thinking when I was doing over MassQ, because I did do a whole thing, a series of things with MassQ many, many years ago, but I, I'm thinking like it was more than a decade ago that I was doing some MassQ stuff uh, when they were... Yeah, you know, they're they're great great people, and I I remember doing that, but it was when my kids were very very little. Oh, wow, that's yeah. funny. Ten years ago, it was like a whole other lifetime for me. I wasn't even I was just barely thinking about being a teacher then. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, and I'm sure the organization was. I mean, the technology was quite different at that time. So, well, let let's open the door to the question. I would like to start with everybody, since you know we just were sort of talking about uh, when you started becoming a teacher. But how did you become a science teacher? Uh, what led you into the science classroom? Oh. Um, I have a really untraditional pathway. Uh, I started going to college thinking that I was going to be one of the people that helped cure cancer. Mm-hmm. And so I took all sorts of science and lab classes and then decided that um, maybe a more hands-on approach, nursing would be better. So I switched to classes for that worked part-time as a physical therapy assistant and um, found that working with patients was not for me, went back into science, got my degree, worked in a lab, and was extremely lonely there. Mm -hmm. So I went to a career counselor, and that career counselor and I sat down and 
when we looked at all of my previous positions, in each one I had been some sort of trainer or teacher. So she recommended I become a substitute teacher to see how I like it. I worked as a substitute for one day. <laughs> and they offered me a long-term sub position to cover maternity leave. And on my second day of that long-term sub, they said, oh, no, you are an awesome at this. Do you know this is your calling? You can't leave. So they hired me as an instructional assistant, and I worked there while I got my, um, my education license. <laughs> that is, that's an amazing uh, experience that you had connecting. It really uh, with is. Your- yeah, and I idea that it was that odd I thought that's how it always happened and when I tell people they say oh my goodness you are so lucky and I, I, I know I am now how big a school was this um it was actually it was Bay Path um, okay Vogue Tech School so it was not not a huge school so, yeah yeah. I was as you were saying that I was I was sort of envisioning it on my school that I, I teach in, which is you know this giant two thousand student school. But I was also thinking about the other schools I've taught in, and I've taught everything from a school that's you know barely over five hundred students to a group of students somewhere in the middle or a population of about twelve hundred. And and I could see in some of those smaller schools, you know, being able to make those kind of connections. Um, I think in my current building that would be. Uh, that would be quite remarkable just because of size and scope and, you know, the enormity of the building and the ability to make connections. But I can see how in a smaller school you could have conversations with people and, and start to get a sense of sort of where they are and what it's like for them to be engaging with students. So that is that is pretty special. Yeah, actually, at that school, the superintendent, it's a one school district and the superintendent mm-hmm. was in that off in that school. So I I shook his hand every morning on my way in. So it it was very an intimate sort of situation. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's really, as I said, remarkable because, you know, I can think of the number of times I've seen my superintendent in my building is not that, that much. And that's not to say he's not there, but just because the superintendent's in the building does not mean I would have any chance whatsoever of seeing him um, <laughs> because of the size and the scope and, you know, um, there are people who I have been teaching with for, you know, you know, nearly 20 years who every once in a while I see them and I'm like, oh, you still work here. Uh, <laughs> because if you're if you're an English teacher or a social studies teacher or a world language teacher and your schedule doesn't match up with mine, there's a like pretty good chance I will never see you um, because the size and scope. So, um, yeah. So you decide to go and get your license. Um, and so how do you find your way to to Millbury then? Um, they offered me a job pretty much. I, um, I worked as an instructional assistant at Bay Path and there just weren't any teaching positions available. So Mm -hmm. I, um, I heard about a position in Millbury, applied for that and it was sort of serendipitous, sort of like my first step into education where I met with the principal and she said, I don't know what it is, but I just really like you and I need you to work here. So she 
talked to the superintendent who was not very happy about not doing any more interviews and hired me pretty much on the spot. Wow. Yeah, I know. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny, but I I do think that there is a intuitive component of of when you meet people because um you know I I'm I've been an acting for a long time, but um my story about how I ended up getting to acting is uh, I went to a job fair. I was I was teaching in another school near Boston, and uh, after my job, uh, at the end of the day, I took a stack of resumes and I drove from near Boston out to Newton North to go to a teaching job fair they were having there. So they had, you know, people from the superintendent's offices from all kinds of schools all throughout um, Eastern Massachusetts were there. And I definitely had a couple of places on my list. I was like, yeah, I'm going to go in there. I'm going to make sure I get my resume to to this school and to this school and to this school. And uh, it's not to say that Acton wasn't a school like that, but I would say that it's fair. It's fair to say that Acton's reputation as a place as a young teacher to work wasn't quite as stellar back in 2000 as I think it's probably an easier place to come in as a young teacher now. Not that I think it's an easy place to be a young teacher anywhere, but at the time I had been told that it had been sort of a tough place and, 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 you know, it was a a big school and um, high expectations and that sort of stuff. And it, it just wasn't on my like short list of places I definitely wanted to get in, but um, it definitely was demographically and like location wise, something I had I had checked out and looked at and was sort of interested in. And so I'd gone around, I saw all the places and I was getting ready to leave and I look over and people are starting to pack up. It's the end of the job fair and I, I see George Frost, who's a former assistant superintendent there, standing there packing up his stuff and I decided, well, I'll go over and talk to the acting folks. Like it was like a whim. <laughs> and I proceeded to have like a 20 minute conversation with him at the very end. So then like a couple of days later, the head of the science department calls me up and basically was like, yeah, I, I talked to our assistant superintendent. We need to bring you in for this. And uh, we have all these positions. I definitely want you here. And I walked in and had a very similar conversation with that my department head at that time. You know, the guy who hired me. It was like, yeah, yeah, like you're the guy. I want you. He's like, he, for whatever reason, I don't know. It was the conversation with George, or there were some sort of magical words on the on the page on my resume. But there was a there was a match, and they, as an experienced educator, had in their mind something that they wanted. Yeah. And I'm sure that's sort of what your principal had in mind when, when they met you. Yeah, it's more about fitting into the culture, I think, than anything else. And when you now looking back and seeing like how Google goes about hiring their people, you know, where you can train anyone, but it's the personality that you, you can't change. So it's more that than anything else, I think. And on paper, I'm not that impressive, actually. So, you know, if someone would have to actually speak to me to have any real idea of what I'm all about. I think I think what you mean is like on paper, way back then, you weren't that, um, uh, yeah, you weren't I, that impressive. I suppose so, yes. <laughs> Which I could that way. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can understand it, but you know, I, I did internet stalk you, and it's not like you don't have any credentials whatsoever, you know. No, that's true. That's true. 
So, so which which sort of brings me to the next question because one of the things I, I noticed, and um, you know, when I would go to the school website, I see that your you know your your principals and some people in your leadership at your school have Twitter followers, or and you know have Twitter handles, and the schools tweeting things out. And I, I know that you're sort of this con- fairly connected educator, um, social media wise. Is this like a school culture thing, or is this sort of your own personal journey? Is this stuff that you brought in from you know like your experience before becoming a classroom teacher you know how how is how have you become this sort of connected person where you can go to a you know go to a professional development and people there know you from your your twitter pre- presence and and other things um it actually started uh oh i don't know how many years ago i joined twitter but it was because i heard that john mayer was on twitter and I thought, if there are only six people on Twitter and I'm one of them, I surely can get John Mayer to interact with me. But I didn't. And I thought, well, who else is on here? And I found some science teachers from Florida, started talking mm-hmm. to them, and it just kept progressing. I just got so much enjoyment from talking to people that have totally different experiences than I do that I got to learn a lot from them and yeah I just continued doing that so this is definitely part of your your professional learning network is this group of teachers that you're interacting with um, through Twitter and I mentioned Voxer and a, a few other places is that is that fair to say that this is sort of like your your ongoing rolling sort of professional network that that sort of keeps you sustained it actually is you know I find that it's kind of funny that there are teachers across the United States and even in other countries that have more familiarity with the inside of my classroom than teachers at my own school because mm. we have those interactions like that where we we share ideas and blogs and articles it's for people that don't understand twitter it's a whole lot more than the um short character limits that they have i honestly don't even know what it is is it up to 200 something characters now but yeah i think they're at 280 now yeah so i started when it was only 140 and we had to abbreviate everything so we learned a different sort of shorthand but um yeah a lot just so much sharing happens i learned about things like the stanford spa courses Mm -hmm. where um the short performance assessments those were absolutely wonderful and connecting with people that um, are familiar and actually experts with the next generation science standards helped me to really support my fellow teachers at my school when we switched to the next generation science standards. And without Mm. social media, none of that, I wouldn't have been able to accomplish any of that. Yeah, it would have been. I, I know what you're saying. That the it took me a while to wrap my head around the NGSS, but having friends from other parts of the country who were ahead of me certainly helped uh, in that. Yeah, and just being able to ask a question and getting so many answers. You know, I have seven people in my science department at my school, and I have about a thousand science teachers that I follow on Twitter. So if I ask a question, I can get a thousand answers 
potentially on Twitter. And I mean, I never do get that many, but I still get quite a few. And, and here's the evidence right now how I sent out a tweet one morning about podcast equipment. And here I am a few days later on your podcast. So that's how social media works. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the the question and the way you're talking about it, I guess, um, you know, sometimes I do feel like uh, I feel a, that it's weird. I feel like I'm a weirdo at school because of my use of social media, um, because I feel like the vast majority of my colleagues have no concept of it. And their only view of social media is that it's like the end of our culture as we know it. So do you feel like you're an outlier in your school or is there a is there a community within your school that that uses social media, you know, in a productive way? No, I am the outlier at my school. Absolutely. And it's funny how people say, oh, there's her with the social media again. Oh, well, <laughs> I'm not tweeting about the Olympics or movie stars or politics. It's all about education and science. I don't follow anything that's pop culture stuff that people think social media is all about. It's so much more than that. And people, it seems cliche, but people that don't know just don't know what it's like. Mm. Um, actually, I was just talking this morning to someone on Voxer saying that it's like having a whole army of teachers in my pocket and it helps me to be a little more confident. And instead of trying something totally new for the first time by myself, I can have the support of someone that who has tried it already or someone who will give me some feedback after I have. Yeah, I the I I completely agree with you in terms of the uh, the ability to have the network to ask questions to. I also have found that there's sort of a a spread of Twitter users and other social media users when it comes to educators. There are a group of people who put out a very perfect, very polished very refined platitudes about education. And then there's a whole group who are very honest about their struggle and the mistakes they make and that sort of thing. And I have found that those people are the people who've given me strength. The people who are like, whoop, I screwed this up or, oh, after four attempts, this finally worked. Those are the people who I've sort of gravitated to a little bit more yeah. because I think that so much of what we're doing is going to involve some trial and error. We're going to make some mistakes. We're going to have moments where we're going to have to take risks. And inherent in risk taking is you're going to have to sometimes have it not work out. And so those are the people, the people who have, who have persevered, little setbacks or trials and errors. Those are the people who have really helped me. Yeah, that's true. There are people that will only put out what's perfect about what has happened in their classroom or maybe even be not completely honest about what is actually happening because you know like it's I don't even go on to Pinterest but I know that you know Pinterest is all these picture perfect classrooms that you know people share oh I wish my classroom looked that way and I thought if you go in there on any given day I will bet you that is not what's actually happening there are there are actually honest people on Twitter that tell you, man, this was a giant flop. Has anyone ever yeah. tried this and it actually worked? And those are the, the good conversations that actually end up being productive. Yeah. And the reality is actually probably I, I probably overswung the other way as I was as I was hearing myself say it and having you talk about it. Like 
the truth is, is that everything we do is neither perfect, like you were saying, and it's neither a disaster. Like everything we do is sort of in the middle. And so even when the lessons work well, I think, you know, and I was mentioning something else earlier that like I was talking about audio quality. And when I go back and I re-listen to my shows, I hear every audio imperfection there is that gets into the final recording and it drives me crazy. And I kind of feel the same way about my classroom. I'm not dwelling on the kids who got it. I'm dwelling on this one kid who didn't, you know, if I've got a couple groups working on something and I'm, I'm dwelling on the fact that ugh, this, you know, I, I am not able to really translate it to this kid in this one place. And that for me feels like failure, even if there are other successes going on in the classroom. Yeah, it's, I totally agree with that. And it's, I was just dealing with that same situation this past week at school where we had our midterm exams and there's mm -hmm. one student, but I, I don't give exams. I, we can have a different, we can add <laughs> that into the conversation later, but there was this one student that I thought, I can't think of a single thing that student could produce for me that he could prove what he knows about biology. And I went on to Twitter and I looked at what other teachers were doing and I thought, oh my goodness, that is perfect. This is going to work for this kid. And the next day I went into school, I created this project for this kid to do and he, who is usually totally helpless in my classroom, or, you know, that's an exaggeration. That that was awful to say, actually. But he, I feel like he looks that way. I feel like when he sits there, he's thinking, I'll never get this. Mm. I don't know what any of this is. And it's all in his ability to communicate it back to me, not in his mm -hmm. ability to actually attain the knowledge. So he did this project, he came to me at the end of the exam block and he said, my brain hurts. I finished <laughs> it, but I feel so good and my brain hurts. That is excellent. That's exactly what I want you to feel like. Go home and have a great weekend, kiddo. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I think you've opened this door about, um, about, your your approach to learning and I, I had mentioned before you you have this blog and and you have this wordpress blog that you post on uh I've, I, I would say occasionally um you know like every couple months um which i think is probably par for the course for most education bloggers i think people who are in the classroom it's really hard to sustain a, like a regular blogging schedule in there but when i looked back at your posts you had quite a few posts that talked about assessment and mastery as a general theme and you actually earlier this year posted about going gradeless so how have your thoughts evolved when it comes to grades and grading and how is going gradeless in a traditional school going it's i think it's fantastic my students i have conversations with them about it actually just yesterday when the Yesterday was the last day of the semester, so I asked them for their reflections on it, and it's actually, it works well for me. It might not work well for every other teacher, and it just turns out that there are kids that don't test well, so I started doing things like giving ungraded formative assessments, and just providing feedback and having conversations about their what they knew, what they missed, and how they could go back 
revisit some things or maybe get their information in a different way. And having those ungraded formative assessments really encourage them to take more risks and be more curious because there were there was nothing to lose by not being successful. So that just evolved into me not giving traditional grades because I am in a traditional grade school. When you're in that traditional grade system and you're doing what, are we, is it fair to say you're doing something that's more like of a standards-based assessment? So the standards are what I post on Google Classroom. So rather than having a test grade, quiz grade, homework grade, what they have are standards and the how well they reached that standard. So if they got an 80, then there's also a rubric attached that shows which part of the standard they're not fully mastered yet. Mm-hmm. And if you go back to look at their Google Classroom, then you can see the individual assignments that a student did. And, you know, hopefully people wouldn't be starting at the end and working backward. They'd be following along and seeing, oh, look at my son didn't quite get this thing on cell membranes. So we should probably follow up with more cell membrane work. And I do the same in my classroom until they finally understand what I need them to before we move forward. And so at the end of a marking period, again, in a traditional in a traditional school, you have to take this information that is about, you know, uh, learning standards and convert it into the imperfect system that we use to uh, rank and sort children, which is grades, um, and put something out on their report card itself. My, my, I assume that when you report your report, your grades that go on the report card with all the other subjects, you have to come to some letter, number, percentage, something like that. Right. I do have to put a percent on it. So I used um, single point rubrics and they're mm-hmm. really pretty they're really pretty broad. And if you look at my grades, you'd see that there's like it's they're usually in fives. No one's gonna get an, an eighty-seven because I I really don't see the point in what those two little points mean one way or another. But you know, you get you earn points for each part of the standard that you have mastered. And usually usually they're in um in pretty large increments. <laughs> <laughs> and and you started talking about, you know, you were mentioning your 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 students' reaction to that. And in my experience, what I found is when I am making a shift from a a focus that is on grades to a focus on learning, uh, particularly with my honor students, they are very grade focused. I mean, they have been trained to be grade focused by the time they've reached high school. And so they're not always 100% in tune with what I'm trying to do. Um, in other words, my goals and their goals may not match up. They're trying to get as good a grade as possible because they feel like that's their job. And I'm trying to get them to master as much learning as I can possibly get them to because that's the focus I have. Uh, how has that part of it gone from the the student communication piece? Or are you able to get good student buy-in? It's usually pretty good. I have... I think among students, I have a reputation, so they know basically what to expect when they come into my classroom, but then it's always a surprise. So probably about 
two months in, they, they stop and they look and they say, well, wait a minute, why did I do that work if I'm not getting a grade for it? I said, well, because if you don't do the work, you can't learn what you need to learn. So these are all just practice. What would happen if you did that and you got absolutely everything wrong? Would you like me to count that against you, even though you were just practicing? And Mm. they start to see how that happens. What I have done is for the formative assessments, um, those are absolutely ungraded and do not count toward the final grade at all. And then I have the summative assessments, which are what I use to base the reported grade on. And if they complete all the formative assessment work, they can redo a summative assessment for um, no loss of credit, which is their incentive for the for the grade-getting students. That is their incentive to do the ungraded practice work. Yeah, and I know that one of the things you had mentioned in, uh, and again, this blog post was the idea of sort of rebranding formative assessments as practice opportunities. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that part of the idea of the word assessment to a student or like helping them sort of see this as a pro- progress step for them? Or, I, or why, why, why rebrand? <laughs> well, because when they, so when they look at their list of grades, especially the students that are really tracking their grades or trying to explain their grade to their parents, they see <laughs> these formative assessments. And that's very much an education word. I don't think a, an average parent knows what formative assessment and summative assessment mean. So I'm trying mm-hmm. to rebrand that as, oh, no, those were just my practices. You know, if I if I do this many practices, then I'll have an opportunity to do the last assessment at the end. And when things are called assessment, I think students tend to think that they're, um, they have some more weight than I want them to feel like they have. I want them to feel like Mm -hmm. it's okay. It's just practice. I don't have to be perfect at this. And it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to look for help from my peers. It's actually encouraged for students to help one another instead of relying on Google for all of the answers, which is one of my biggest pet peeves of all time is when you ask a student a question and then they just Google it when I know they know the answer, but they still don't have the confidence to say what's in their head instead of relying on Google to get something that is absolutely correct because they are, they don't want to get the bad grade. Hmm. Yeah. I, 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 the, the getting students to take risks in the classroom is, is definitely a, a challenge. And I could see rebranding if that's going to be something you're going to get out of it is creating that space for risk. Um, that's, that's a a good reason to make that rebranding. Yeah, I know. I, I feel like I am, I come off as sounding very muddy about this, but I am still, it is still a work in progress and it's difficult reporting this back to parents because of the traditional grade school where Mm -hmm. I, it has to translate to a number eventually 
and usually the number is a 90 or 100 because I don't let up. And I talked to the students about that. Like I said, it was the end of the semester. And I was looking down the grade book and I said, you know, if, if someone wasn't in here with us, they would think I made your grades up. But if someone ever asks you, you tell them, you work hard to earn these grades. These are not mistakes. And this is not me having any sympathy for you. I'm not just saying, oh, the, he tries hard, so he should get a better grade. He actually tries every day his hardest and she has done this same thing in multiple different iterations to finally understand a concept that's what this grade is it's not about participation or homework grades it's all about proving what they know and mm -hmm. As a teacher, I feel like if a student doesn't know everything they need to, then it that's on me. I need to figure out how to get that knowledge to that student. Yeah, I as I, as you're talking, I'm like I'm playing the the vocabulary game in my head because um, <laughs> sort of uh, what it how I use the word formative and how you're using the word formative and how I've heard other people use formative. Like to me, what the way you're describing it is these 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 formative things that you're doing are, are really just sort of the feedback. I mean, that's really what it sounds like to me. These are opportunities for students to practice and get feedback on how they're progressing towards these concepts. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, every, if I am... every assignment that I give is an opportunity to have a conversation with a student. And when I create these assignments, I do them with the mindset of what kind of mistake could the student possibly make that will start a conversation that I can reset their path? What path led them to this incorrect answer? So we can go back and fix that. And move forward together. Yeah, because uh, I use formatives. Um, I'm, I'm thinking the one thing I actually call formatives that my students get. And it you, when you were talking about how students Google things and um, it reminded me, I've been using um, formative essays with my AP students, which are intended to be sort of practice, short free response questions, the kind that they would see on the AP test. Um, at the end, and they they don't have to do a ton of them. I just ask them to pick one of them a month to do, and then I will score them and give them back, and they can rewrite them if they like, um, if they're not happy with them. Uh, but I was having conversations with students who've been struggling on the open response, and basically what I was getting from them is where I have in my mind, oh, this is a great opportunity for them to practice the essays in a low stakes manner. They can get some feedback about what they know. They can iterate. They can get better and do that. What they have done because of this grade centeredness of it, and they do get a score that that does go in as a small score. Um, it weighs in with their homework. They are avoiding the questions that they look at that are hard. <laughs> They are picking the ones that are the easiest. And then when they go to answer them, they're having their book out, the internet out, and they are using varieties of resources. Mm -hmm. And so I was having the conversations with one of my classes in particular, which it came out when I was going over, you know, their mid-year, uh, which has, you know, it's AP questions on it and some some 
a, a handful of students really struggled on these these short free response questions. And I was I was talking to them about the information I had gotten from talking to different students. And I was like, so if you're a student who, when you look at the formatives for the month, you go, oh, I, I'm not po- I couldn't possibly do that one or whoa, that one looks awful. I'm to totally avoid that one. What you're saying is that if if I see an open response question on the AP test that's like this, I have no chance of being able to do it. Um, and, and I was like, so what you're saying is you want them to have the opportunity to get the feedback, and so do I. But the incentive structure from a student and the structures that we're trying to implement may or may not match up. Um, and so I'm curious about the, the the cultural piece from the kids. You say you're sort of a known entity, and I think my students sort of, I'm a known entity as well. Um, do you have any like special sauce for helping the the focus be on learning as they move through the year? Oh, I just, I make sure they, they give me their own work and I spend, I feel like a spy sometimes I will take their, their words and Google them and see if it comes up at ask.com or anything like that. And if there is even a hint that it's an internet answer, then I give it right back and say, this is just not acceptable. I need this to be in the words that I know you use every day. I'd rather see a misspelled, grammatically incorrect answer than something that has come up from Google. And so you you just have to stop doing that. I'm not going to accept it. I will not accept any answer that looks like that. So start over and be more confident in your own knowledge because most of the problem is that they're, they're just not confident and can't stand getting less than an A. <laughs> and they, there was this one student that was sitting in my classroom with a, a lab and she was looking up the questions, the answers to the questions on her phone. And I said, what are, you, what are you doing right now? She said, well, you wanted me to get the right answers, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. I did. But I, you just did this lab. I know you know the right answers. Even if you don't, I do. So it, it starts a whole conversation. Like It's all about the conversations that you have with your kids every day. And how I don't put any value well very little value on grades and all all of the encouragement is on just give it a try it's okay to be unsuccessful but it's not okay to not try mm-hmm. yeah that's it's interesting i've also found that i've been putting up a lot of a lot of things i don't collect but i put i put the assignments up on class website. And then I also put the answers up mm-hmm. and I tell them I'm putting the answers up. But I'm also not collecting. I'm also not collecting this. It was like, but these are going to be the types of things that you're going to be assessed on, on upcoming assessments. So, you know, let's work through them and then find out where you are. But I, I think that for me, what you're describing is, um, is similar. I, I feel like I need to continually have the conversation with the students so that, I don't get blinded 
for my aspirations about the assignments and I maintain sort of an empathy for where they're coming from and where their motivations lie and the system that's created their motivations, um, which is, which is to get good grades. Yeah, exactly. There's a, a couple of students I had a conversation with this week and I said, if, if I had asked you these same questions, it was the end of the term assessment for anatomy class. And I said, if I asked you the same question at the beginning of the semester, would your answer have been any different than it was today? And they said, well, of course, it, of course it would be because we were in class and we learned all these things. I said, but you could have just as easily Googled the answer at the beginning of the year like you did yesterday because I know you Googled that. <laughs> so why did you come here every day? If I could have just given you this on the first day, you could have Googled it and we could have been all done and moved on to something else. You know, think about that. You know, I give them questions like that to ponder. Why, why did you come here every day if you can just Google it? The whole point is that you need to have this knowledge in your head so that you can actually use it to solve a problem. You don't want to have to look things up every time because if you don't have this knowledge in your head, you can't transform it into the solution to a problem. Yeah. And, and also in science so much, building that skill to find the, you know, find the answers that we don't yet have, yeah. uh, which is so, so key to, to what is, what we're doing in scientific discovery. Yeah. Or apply it to something else. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the thing it to me, this correlates, I don't know if to anyone else it would, but we were talking about the difference in the structure of the trachea and the esophagus. And I said, well, why do you think people created bendy straws, right? The ribs and the bendy straw help you to curl the straw so it's easier to have a drink. Do you think someone just made that up? No, they model that after the human body. That's what we do all the time. We do that with planes that model birds. These are the things that we do. We, we have to have knowledge so we can use it to solve problems. We don't just acquire knowledge so that we can spit it back out to someone. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, this is a we could have a longer conversation about going gradeless, especially in a in the traditional system, because I think everybody else has that. But I, I would like to shift gears to what actually initially brought us together today, okay. uh, which is the rumor has it you're considering forming a podcast. So I haven't even asked you this question yet, even though we've talked about podcasts both online and before we started recording. So what are you thinking about having your your show be about? I would really like to learn more about using technology such as um, augmented reality and virtual reality in classrooms. So I'm hoping to be able to start up a podcast where I can talk to people that have expertise in all sorts of areas so that I can learn from them. So you're thinking in ed tech meets, is it going to be science classroom or any classroom? I, I would selfishly like it to be mostly science classroom but <laughs> i would also 
I also understand that there are things that people do in other classrooms that would easily transfer into the science classroom. So as long as it's something that's going to improve the education for all students, I would love to hear about it because I'm sure there are ways to make connections that we can, I, I can always make it science. And I'm sure you can do the same. There's, there is no limit to where I can bring my science. Neat. So, I, and I and I will say in all full, you know, in full disclosure, and I've mentioned this a few times. Between when I conceived of having my podcast and when I actually put my first episode out, eh, there was about eight months uh, <laughs> that I took to put it together and figure all the other stuff out. So there's there's no like rush to get it out there, except for your own individual impatience, which sometimes is a big driving factor. But have you have you started like? thinking about maybe your like your wish list like what are the I mean you said augmented reality you've said a couple other things you have like a wish list of like stuff you want to learn in particular and and the kinds of people you might want to reach out to I I'm really curious about merge cubes I have some in my classroom and my students use them for for things like the the 3D heart and the learning the the bones of the cranium and things like that but there are teachers that use them in really innovative ways and I don't know how they do it. So I'd like to be able to, to learn more about that. And I know there are, there are teachers who are expert on that, that I would really like to pick their brain for ideas. And uh, I could think of, I'm just like, as you said, you picked out a specific thing. I was thinking about other things like, uh, I don't know if you know spiker boxes. Oh, I have some spiker boxes, actually. Yeah. So like you could, in same idea, you get spiker boxes and maybe talk to a couple of different people who, who use spiker boxes directly with their students or, yeah, I mean, you, the, the, the series endless, I mean, you could almost run a series or five or six episodes where you just talk about people who use like different types of probes, you know, like the Vernier or the Pasco probes to have students doing research or to collect data or to run experiments or that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I even have like, this is how much I have left to learn. I have a Texas Instruments calculator that hooks up to our vernier probes and does all sorts of things. It can program little vehicles and things like that. I <laughs> am totally lost with that thing. Like my focus is on student engagement and like transforming their their view of their own progress and grades. So when it comes to things like that, I need help. And that's <laughs> what I feel like this podcast would be all about. Like, help me use this technology, please. <laughs> Not to make it more complicated, but it almost sounds like you, you almost need a video podcast because <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, honestly, because I, I mean, audio will could definitely work for some things, but I could also see visuals or you're going to have to post, you're going to have to post pictures. Your, your show notes are going to be series of pictures uh, about these things. <laughs> yeah, that, that could be though. There's, I don't have any problem doing that and it would be a learning experience you're right. I would have to try them out. And why not show people all of the things that could go wrong? Because that's what I will be able to demonstrate. <laughs> so uh, possibly coming sometime in 2019. Have you have, have you gotten to the brainstorming out names yet? Um, I actually have. And I 
I feel like I've it. You don't have to. You don't have to be till bold yet. You could tell me in a few weeks. We could. Uh... Well, the thing is, yeah, maybe I'll maybe I'll wait because it sounds it sounds really cheesy, I guess. But I'm rebranding my classroom and everything, so I I have. Uh, it's almost like a big reveal coming. It's gonna uh... in my mind. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> well, that's important. Yeah. Uh, well, and you also, you know, you have to do things like you have to find out if, uh, you know, there is an existing shows that have that name. You have to find out if there is this existing websites that have that name. Um, there are things like that you do have to take into account. So I will say that two or three of the original ideas I had for my podcast name, they there are already websites out there that have that moniker. Um, and I don't even remember what they are now, but I remember I had brainstormed out a handful of things. And then when I started you know, Google searching to see what was out there, I found that uh, such products already existed in the education space. And it was like, huh, okay. So that's, a, that's already a thing. So I can't really start a podcast if somebody else has already staked claim to that name. Huh. Well, I love that your name, Life of the School. I think that's awesome. Awesome. I can't believe Thank that you. wasn't your first choice. <laughs> I don't know if it was, uh, it was definitely on the short list of things that I had listed, but I know that I had multiple names um, on a, on a list uh, where I had brainstormed out. I didn't lock right into that right off the bat. And, um, and, you know, now it's easy to say that two and a half years into it where I've been doing this for, for a while, but, um, I knew that when I first generated a handful of ideas that I had come up with a couple of different possibilities. And, and then I decided, I actually think I'd heard somebody who was talking about podcasting saying, yeah, make, check all the URLs, check what else is out there that has your space. And, you know, because you, you would want, I mean, I don't know, what kind of name I would have, but if I had a name that was tied to some product out there, that would have been, you know, problematic. Yeah. yeah. Or even s silly things like the acronym, when someone abbreviates it, it could spell <laughs> something inappropriate. You know, luckily you have lots, so that's okay. Yeah. The little things you don't think of. Yeah. I will. I will say, I think that probably was what put it over the top where I went with life of the school had a nice, simple abbreviation to lots was like, I was like, Oh, I like that. That's, that's very easy. Uh, I'm going to, I even, I can remember that. Uh, <laughs> as I had somebody the other day was telling me we were, we were working on some statements for some upcoming MCAS work that we're doing um, as we're moving on, as you mentioned earlier, the NGSS standards, and they dropped the, the students will be able to acronym the SWB. Like they said it, like they just rolled it off their tongue because of the work they had done on some other thing and i looked at them and i was like that is just such a mouthful you know to the swabats or whatever she said i was like yeah i know what you mean but that is just not a clean <laughs> it's not a clean abbreviation i feel like whenever you throw a w into it it's not going to be cleaned up very nicely yeah all right so i think we've covered a lot of ground here we've teased the podcast we'll definitely have to promote it out later um you know when when you, when you decide how you want to launch it and you do have to think about all the other things, like what is your length going to be? Are you going to be one of those people who like my podcast is X number of minutes and always, you know, that, uh, that length, or is it going to be free form? Is it going to be once a month? Is it going to be twice a month? Is it going to be, you know, like wh what is a reasonable degree? Like there's all these other questions that you sort of have to come to grips with. So, um, I fully appreciate that it may take months before you wrap your head around all the different things you want to try to do. Yeah, it's been. Uh, I've been thinking about it for a long time, and I, I am very good at saying that I'm going to do things weekly, and they end up not being weekly at all. And my blog is Exhibit A, 
where I thought I'd be able to blog monthly, but then it just, it doesn't happen. So I'm, I'm not going to even say that I'm going to book to have a podcast out weekly, but then if you do it monthly, then it, I'll bet it tends to be forgotten. So I think twice yeah. monthly would be good. Yeah. Well, the one thing I will say from everybody's advice is that whatever you decide is to pick your schedule, make that your schedule and make that be an, an achievable thing. So um, I know some people who put things out monthly and I, I think, you know, it's always kind of a, it's not, it's always a pleasant surprise when it pops up into my, my podcast feed because I'm a person who subscribes. Um, I'm sure you get more subscribers or weekly podcasts probably get better subscription numbers than every other week. And those probably get better subscribers than once a month. But the goal is you want to have something to, and this is sort of the advice others had said, you want there to be sort of a degree of reliability mm -hmm. um, because once you give yourself permission to not skip, stick to your predicted schedule, that's when shows pod fade. That's when people go, Oh, we're not putting, oh, we missed a week. We missed our schedule oh, then they stop putting out episodes. And that just that just happens. It happens all the time to podcasts. And I am somebody who, while I will take on lots of things, I am somebody who nails a schedule. And I have, I, I don't know if it's like I get an extra dopamine hit or whatever when I meet my schedule goals, but I like, I am somebody who's very good at keeping a good routine. <laughs> so whatever it is that's manageable, I think once a month is a is a totally reasonable thing to do, especially when you're doing other things. The once a week idea to me seemed like madness. Um, and now that I've been doing this for a few years, twice a month is barely manageable some some months, particularly when the school year gets really hectic. Yeah, that's the thing. You can't you can't predict how your school year is going to go. Yeah. Or even the schedule that you're going to get next year. <laughs> especially with me teaching electives. I have more students this year than I ever have had. So if I was committed to doing a weekly podcast, I would really be under serious pressure right now. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're going to do a weekly podcast, they should be like no more than eight minutes long. Um. <laughs> yeah. But I, I could do a weekly podcast if I made them like, you know, eight to 10 minutes long. But even then, like, I, I think that, you know, the, the, the format that you go with will, will have some dictation on, on, uh, on what's a reasonable goal. But if you put out one, I said one good quality podcast a month, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. And, um, and, you know, give yourself permission to build up if that's something you want to do. And that's the other thing is that if you make a change, like you decide, I want to try to do this every once in a while. And then when, you know, I want to do this once a month and then you feel that, Oh, I, there's more space here. There's more content I want to put out. You could always switch over to twice, you know, twice a month or vice versa. If you start doing twice a month and you realize with the rigors of the school year, as long as you're open about that, those are the podcasts that tend to do better. The ones that shift their schedule. Like I know a few education podcasts that go down to like every other week during the summer or like once a week during the summer or, you know, or they, they, they rotate to some different format. I think that the, as long as you're mindful, I guess mindful is the right word about how you want to do it, then you'll find that it's easy to come back and make that next episode. Yeah. So give yourself permission to be be flexible and and just have in your mind there. Um, I think that those are things that will make it something that's you should never have guilt about your hobby. <laughs> so, and I know a lot of people who have guilt about their blogs. You know, like oh, I mean to do my blog more often, but I don't. I should write more. It's like put out you put out your blog when you put out your blog, and the same thing with your podcast. If you want to have a regular conversation with a group of people, 
just tell them when that conversation is coming and people will appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> I am a person that definitely does. I, if I give myself a goal, I, I will be unrelenting in attaining the goal. So that's, I actually this year uh, committed to write a book. I have a contract to write a book by um, that will come out for summer of 2020. So I, I'm not putting myself under any pressure. I'm giving myself plenty of time, but um, I think between the podcast and increasing my blogging, I think that will increase my stamina to be able to actually have a book written by the end of the year. Some might, some people might say adding an extra hobby in or an extra <laughs> reach in might not be the thing to add in. But uh, uh, all right, so now you've teased this book. What is this book going to be about? The book is going to be about how changing my grading policy has encouraged me to think outside the box with assessments in my classroom culture and how just that one change has totally transformed every aspect of my teaching in my classroom. So it's a, it's going to be a very reflective book for me Mm. and maybe start some conversations with people too. Uh, I will also say if the, if you can manage to marry that grading, grade changing concept into your ed tech podcast, you might find that they're uh, a little self-fulfilling and self-sustaining and maybe have a little feedback for you as well. So maybe having that, embracing technology, incorporating technology and how that will, you know, ultimately feed to changes into classroom culture and so forth. Yeah. Maybe something else to, to roll in there. Yeah. That is my hope. Yeah. I, I just, I feel very insecure about the technology part. So getting help from the experts is definitely going to support that. Well, I think uh, the other good thing, and this is sort of the brave thing, if you model learning for your students, like you want to do this thing, it's something you don't feel is a strength right now. You're modeling how to learn. And that's, that's super powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And they, they need that because they feel like experts were born experts. And (laughs) if they weren't born an expert, they never will be. Yeah. 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 All right. So let's, uh, let's get into, I, I don't know, like, I think we've already hit, hit on what you're looking forward to in your classroom the years to come, but is there anything we haven't touched upon that you're looking forward to in your classroom? Um, boy, I don't think so. I think <laughs> we have talked about just about everything there is to talk about. Yeah. I, I have an exciting ecology unit coming up for my freshmen where we're going to try to make a Google tour out of the, we have a nature trail in the back. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to take the kids out there while we're learning or while they're learning ecology and the specific species and their interactions out in the back. We're going to make a Google, a VR Google tour so that people can just virtually walk through and observe all the different species and get information about them. Wow. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Oh, that is pretty exciting. Yeah. Other than that. And, <laughs> oh, and one other thing I, if you ask my students, they're like, Oh, Mrs. Nieves always has one other thing. But <laughs> I, um, 
am two weeks away from moving into the house that I designed all by myself. Well, that's an exaggeration also. I drew it up and gave it to an architect, and we worked together to design the house that is now being built down the street from where I am right now. So, yeah, that is really neat. That is super exciting. I know. That's I tell kids it's go STEM education. <laughs> Look at that. Can you imagine? It's like it's like VR, except it's not virtual. This is reality. I actually drew my house, and this isn't 3D printed. It's actually <laughs> built. I can walk in it. <laughs> All right. Well, I think you've also teased my next question, which is what do you do when you're not in the classroom? You design your, your future living space. Um, <laughs> but what I, I can't imagine between all the things you do in your classroom and all the things you do on social media, and now you're writing a book, uh, what do you what do you do when you're not in the classroom that we haven't hit on? Um, not much. I have <laughs> been choosing, choosing granite and tile and <laughs> trying to find sustainable wood floors. And <laughs> it does end up coming down to cost. And you can see why people end up doing things that aren't good for the environment because it does cost so much money. It's a shame that we can't come up with less expensive solutions, but bamboo is a good choice. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's a lot of different types of bamboo because there's some, some pretty nasty bamboo out there, but there's also some quite sustainable bamboo uh, stuff as well. So yeah. Neat. All right. So before we, uh, before we get to picks the episode, do you have any questions for me? Um, Actually, my one question for you is, is there one accomplishment that you're particularly proud of? Oh, one accomplishment. I don't, this is not my strength. I don't do this well. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, I would say uh, accomplishment. It makes it sound like something like, like I've done and like, I don't know. I don't, I don't really feel like I get to any finish lines. Um, <laughs> uh, um, and there's also different realms. So um, I guess sort of the biggest thing for me is I think sort of the biggest accomplishment that I feel like I'm, I've been doing is I feel like I, I've been able to sort of reinvent my career a few different times to make it so that it's exciting and it's more exciting now than it was, you know, 10, 12 years ago. Um, I feel like I had got to a point where I was, you know, maybe like eight or nine years into my career. And I kind of felt like I, I kind of got stagnant a little bit. Um, And, and so I don't feel that way at all. Like, I don't feel, I remember having a time where I kind of felt like I was, I was sort of, I wasn't as excited about getting up and coming to work every day as I had been my first couple of years. And the fact that I was able to, you know, become reflective, connect with new people and find things and find ways, a lot of ways through the students. The students really drove, helped me find that. But I was able to sort of re-envision what it is that I'm trying to do and refocus things so that I realized the immense opportunity that we're given as teachers uh, to be excited about what I do every day. I think that's sort of the, that that's the thing that I, when I look back at how I could have let myself get burned out of what I do and I am totally not, um, I'm, I'm pretty happy about that, um, mm-hmm. that I accomplished that. 
Um, that is awesome. And it's not easy to do. So congratulations yeah. to you. Yeah. And I would like to say that I did something specific about it, but I don't know that I did. I think that I got very, I mean, like most things in life, I got very fortunate that I interacted with a good group of people, both in the building and by people, I mean, everything from 14 to 18 year olds to the adults in the building. And then the connections I built outside of school as well, that helped turn that around. So, so yeah, I'll, I'll pick that. I'll lean on that if, if that's acceptable. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, let's get to picks of the episode. Bonnie, what is your pick? My pick is the work coming out of the Rising Star Cave out oh. in the Cradle of Humankind, where um, Lee Berger is just rewriting the books on human evolution. And I shared a YouTube video with you Hopefully you can put that in the show notes that summarizes what he thinks about um, how people should view human evolution and how the linear evolution of the, you know, the, the bent over caveman gradually getting taller and standing upright is completely inaccurate. And the evidence that he is finding is showing that human evolution is more of a braided stream where there are lots of branches that come off and sometimes they actually reconnect and that's what they're starting to find in these fossils that they're discovering the reconnections of lineages yeah when i had john meet on uh, a few months ago um he he had done some work with uh, Lee Berger. And I know he's been super excited about the work that they've been doing down in those caves. So yeah. Uh, and a lot of the work that they've been coming out with, he's, I, I, I kind of, this is great. It's almost like having John back on because John was so, has been so excited and he's been posting things on Twitter and on Facebook and, and all of that. So this is a great pick because it's uh, super topical and um, definitely a nice connection point for students. Yeah, exactly. And love John Mead, by the way. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I got to sit down with him in San Diego and, and have a couple of meals with him. So it was, it was a great time to to be face to face with him. Um, and he is, he is as excited and like an energetic and face to face as he is on social media. So, uh, yeah, he's great. I, I really enjoyed talking to John there. So it was great. All right. So I think this is, this is a good, uh, like point counterpoint of where my mind goes. So I am a super molecular guy and I love my yeast. Um, so, uh, the thing that I found it, that I've been, I heard the story and it's been the last few weeks, there've been two or three stories that have come out in, in modern biology that have just really like made my, my mind totally go, Oh my God, we've had it so wrong for so long. Uh, and one of them is there's been a recent set of paper. There's a recent paper that came out that shows that introns, uh, these things that are inside the the original mRNA that comes out that get cleaved off during RNA processing before the mRNA goes out to the ribosome. But the introns, those intervening sequences, they have the ability to affect cell growth in response to either nutrient depletion and deleting an intron from a code uh, reduces the capacity of cells to withstand nutrient depletion 
or starvation. So it turns out this quote unquote junk DNA, when I was in high school, this was what was called junk DNA, these, these, these extra pieces that get cut out. And I don't know if you've ever talked to your students and at least talked about introns and, and spoke about them in disparaging ways. I know that at some point I, I used to do that and then I stopped and started saying, well, it's probably more complicated and we don't know what it means. But the fact is that these little uh, sections of DNA uh, that code for this RNA that get clipped out, some of those RNA get to be able to work as basically RNA silencing mechanisms uh, to tamp down responses depending on how conditions go. And that to me is just so mind boggling. Yeah, that really is. I am not familiar with that paper, but now I'm going to get into it. And I've never, never called it junk DNA <laughs> because there's, there's got to be a reason for it. If it has persisted for so long, there's, I can't imagine that there's no reason for it. Yeah. There has to be something that we just haven't discovered yet. Yeah. And that's, and they're still working on that. And it's one of those things I tell my students all the time. They're like, why does this thing happen? And I'm like, I don't know. And they're like, well, but why don't you know? And it's like, cause they're still working on it. And this is a paper that is the epitome of look at, they've been working on it. Here's what they found. But uh, let me share this last quote from the, from the, the, the authors. It says the failure to recognize the full implications of this, particularly the possibility that the intervening non-coding sequences may be transmitting parallel information in the form of RNA molecules may well go down as one of the biggest mistakes in the history of molecular biology. Like, <laughs> that's out of the paper. So not to say that they think grandiose about their discovery, but like uh, I think about all of the things that we don't understand about why certain cells go down certain paths or like why certain cells do certain things and the variability of cellular responses to things. It could be that signals are causing these introns in certain cells to do things and in other cells causing the introns not to do these things. And that's just crazy. Um, yeah. yeah, it really is. All See, right. Yeah. Now my mind is totally opened up and I'm going to be Googling that all night long. Yeah. <laughs> Paper in nature. So you got to get behind the paywall, but it's still cool. Uh, I, I did share an open source article that uh, gives a lot of the highlights. So. I still have my university access, so oh. I can get in there. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, those are the joys. We could talk about that on a whole other separate episode. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, Bonnie, thank you for joining me. Um, it's been a great conversation. I think we've gone far and wide here as I, as I like to do. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for tolerating my meandering walk through my grading <laughs> policy. It's very much a work in progress, but it's near and dear to my heart. Yeah, we're, it's 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 a work in progress for all of us. Uh, so <laughs> I'm very much open to that as a, as a conversation piece. So, all right, let me give credits for my show. Uh, please subscribe to Life of the School on whatever podcast player you like to use. Uh, I use Stitcher for most of mine, but uh, there is a Apple podcast one. There's, uh, I know, Google Play. Um, you can get this in most places. Also, if you'd like to support this episode, you can go to patreon.com slash lots. Um, dollar a month goes a long way for me. It helps offset some of my costs for uh, website hosting and uh, audio uh, media servers that I have to post things up on. So I do appreciate um, all my Patreons and I do post my episodes a little earlier, uh, early for those who are subscribers so they can hear the audio a couple days in advance. Music on this and every episode is provided by X Magicians and Jake Jenkins. Show notes are provided on lifeoftheschool.org as well as on my Patreon page. You can follow me at Mr. Matthew Tweets 
or at Life of the School. And Bonnie, you can follow Bonnie at Biology Goddess. <laughs> All right. And thanks for joining me. I'll talk to everybody soon.